0: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
1: When we think about being creative, we think about originality, and that turns out to be a mistake. Feedback is actually quite challenging. We often think that we want as much feedback as possible. But as it turns out, feedback
2: can be not not just unhelpful, but actually detrimental to our performance. Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. My guest today is award-winning social psychologist Ron Friedman, who's here to discuss his new book, Decoding Greatness, The Hidden Strategy for Achieving Extraordinary Success. Ron is the founder of Ignite ED a learning and development company and has served on the faculty of the University of Rochester, Nazareth College, and Hobart and William Smith Colleges. He has consulted for political leaders, nonprofits, and many of the world's most recognized brands. Welcome, Ron. It's lovely to have you with us today. And just tell me why you wrote this book. I wrote the book
1: because uh, it was kind of a follow-up to my first book. My first book is called The Best Place to Work. And in it, I took over a thousand academic studies and translated them into plain English so that regardless of whether you're a CEO or just someone starting out, you have access to the best research on both how to elevate your performance and create a great workplace. And that stemmed from my experience of having gone from academics into the real world and working in corporations and seeing the massive gap between the latest science and how most organizations operate but there was something missing from that book. And what was missing is that even within the best organizations, there is a range of performance levels. Some people are top performers, others are not. And I was curious about why that is and what top performers are doing differently. And what I discovered in doing the research for Decoding Greatness is that they're using a skill that few people have heard of that has exponential an exponential impact on their performance. And that skill is reverse engineering. And reverse engineering simply means finding exceptional examples in your field, and then working backward to discover how those examples were created and how you can apply those insights to create something that's novel and unique.
2: Indeed, your book says that um, there's an age-old saying, or uh, lots of studies, so there are two ways to succeed. Either you're just innately talented or you practice a lot, but... You have uncovered reverse engineering. So, you've already defined it. So, just tell me a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah. So, it's exactly right. So, the two main stories, and this is something that we've been taught through childhood, is that you either have to have a particular talent and that your job is to discover what your innate talent is and then find a field that allows that talent to shine, or you have to adopt the Uh, Malcolm Gladwell uh, approach, which is to practice for 10,000 hours and find the right uh, practice regimen and get instant feedback. And then eventually you'll get to where you need to be. But the challenge with both of those stories is that if you don't feel like you have a talent or you haven't identified it, or if you're in a particular stage in your career where you don't have 10,000 hours to go practice, then you feel like you're stuck and you have to settle for your day job. But the truth is that there's this other approach. And that other approach helps you learn faster, it elevates your creativity it enables you to really identify best practice practices and incorporate not just best practices in your field, but best practices in other fields as well. So that is reverse engineering. And just to give you um, a better sense of it, it really depends on the, the, the precise way in which you might reverse engineer depends on your particular field. So in the case of authors, I'm a nonfiction writer. I can tell you that Nonfiction writers will often flip toward the end of the book when they receive a book in the mail or they pick up a book at the bookstore to look at the sources that went into creating that book by looking at the bibliography. If you're a photographer, you might look for clues hidden in the image, like the length of the shadows or the reflection in the eye of the model that tells you about the, the location of the light source and the time of day in which the photo was shot. If you're a chef, you might order a dish to go and spread an intricate dish along a white plate and perhaps use a magnifying glass to identify the ingredients that went into making that dish. And all of these approaches have something in common and that is have adopting a mindset of curiosity and not just passively absorbing you know, interesting experiences, but really being curious about how was this created? What can I learn from this? How can I apply this to my next project? And it's, it's an approach that you can use if you have an office job. So we're not talking about obviously ordering a dish to go, but it might be having a particular way of looking at the way a memo was written or a proposal or a presentation And in Decoding Greatness, I provide a range of processes that enable you to do this so that you have an analytical approach to uncovering what makes something unique and what you can learn from it.
2: I'm also a writer and I do exactly as you described when I picked up your book. The first thing I did was (laughs) go to the notes. It's just, it's just, um, as you say, it's decoding its context and all sorts of things, which I really want to get into. I love the way you illustrated this with a story um, about Steve Jobs Mm. accusing Bill Gates of ripping off his idea for the Macintosh when Gates announced the launch of Windows. Gates replied... I think it's more like we both had this rich neighbor named Xerox and I broke into his house to steal his TV set and found out that you had already stolen it. So that captures the essence of this, doesn't it?
1: It does. And and with that story, for those who aren't familiar with it, back in the 1980s, computers looked nothing like the devices that we have today. If you needed a computer to do anything, you had to reach for a keyboard and you had to input rigid text-based instructions. And today we have to do none of that. We're just able to take our mouse and point and click, and that innovation that enabled us to do that, that made computers simple to use, that's called the graphic user interface or GUI, as it's called in Silicon Valley. And it was the creation of Xerox in a computer called the Alto that no one had heard of because Xerox didn't see its potential. They thought it could be a niche uh, office device that would be sold to wealthy organizations. Steve Jobs learned about it, so did Bill Gates, and they both identified this underutilized technology that could apply to computers more broadly and could allow computers to spread to the masses. Xerox didn't see that potential in part because its executives grew up at a time where typing was the domain of secretaries. And so they overlooked it. And both jobs and gates saw the potential, but they didn't just copy it. It's not like they stripped the code and then sold it under their own name. What they did was they reverse engineered it, meaning that they identified what it did and then worked backward to think about how could I recreate this and also evolve it in different directions. So they didn't just copy the Alto and call it the Macintosh or call it Windows, what they did was they uh, evolved the underlying technology in new ways. So in the case of Microsoft, they were focused on making computers affordable. In the case of Apple, they were interested in making computers user-friendly. And both of them succeeded in different ways. And it was by utilizing something that just wasn't being taken advantage of. And that's the potential really of reverse engineering is looking at other ideas that you can take and evolve and incorporate into your field. And it doesn't just have to be things that other competitors or mentors have done. It can be something that is completely far afield that could be incorporated into your approach.
2: Yeah, you stress um, in the book that this is not copying or over relying on established recipes, because that's always a losing strategy. So I do want to get into all the different processes um, that you describe. And it struck me that in Silicon Valley, because programmers often build upon each other's coding, reverse engineering would seem to be logically a way that you innovate. But you argue it applies to other fields. So let's go into one of the fields, which is copy work. Um, Mm. So it's a technique practiced by literary giants that you write about, like Stephen King, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and even painters like Monet and Picasso. So it reveals a hidden formula. That's an example of reverse engineering. You also give the car industry generic drugs as as other examples. So just tell me how copying makes you more original.
1: Yeah, so that's that. That's the really counterintuitive takeaway: is that copying doesn't just reveal what someone else is doing. In other words, by, by the way, what we mean by copying is not uh, just uh, you know copying uh, somebody else's work and putting your name on it. We're talking about privately practicing by way of recreating a, a finished work. So in the case of painters, what uh, someone like Uh, Picasso might do is take an established painting by, let's say, Monet, and then have it on the left and on the right, a blank canvas, and then recreate Monet's work. And, And the reason that that is useful is because you're constantly forced to compare what your instinctive inclinations are against the decisions of a different painter. And so that process of you know, creating something and then looking back to see what the next step is, that forces you to consider options you would normally have overlooked. And this is where the study that uh, you hinted at uh, comes in. And so this is research out of the University of Tokyo. And in a study done by creative experts there, what they did was they had uh, uh, amateur artists come into the lab and they divided them into two groups. The first group was asked to create original works for three straight days. The second group was asked to create original works on the first day. On the second day, they were asked to pause and recreate the work of an established artist. So in other words, do some copy work. And then on on day three, they were asked once again to create original works. And then the dependent variable, the thing that the experimenters were interested in is who is who? which of the groups was most creative on the final day? And what they found was that the group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist was significantly more creative. And it wasn't by mimicking the style of the artist they had copied. It was going off in completely different directions. And again, the reason for that is because when you're comparing your instinctive inclinations against the work of a master, you're constantly forced to consider the way the choices they made and to see, and then that opens your eyes up to new possibilities that are hidden within your work. So far from making us hacks, what copywork uh, copy work and studying the works of others more carefully actually opens us up to new ideas and makes us more creative.
2: I found that absolutely fascinating. And this kind of search for blueprint, which is also part of it, you write actually dates back to ancient Greece. So because I'm also um, a nonfiction writer, I do find writing fascinating, um, especially fiction, since I'm mm-hmm. not a fiction writer. <laughs> so you wrote that Aristotle, um found that what makes the best stories different is a three-part structure, skillful use of surprises, especially plot twists and a reversal of fortune. Um, So for fiction, this search for successful patterns has been going on for some time. And I thought that was also just another great way that you used to illustrate that this isn't new, it's about decoding um, perhaps what was already there. But when I come back to business, and when we think about entrepreneurs, we do tend to think about originality. So tell me why that's completely wrong. And, why, and how your book argues that it's about pattern recognition, and viability. And you quote Steve Jobs, who said, creativity is just connecting things. So you also talk about Starbucks, Chipotle. So just 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 talk to me about um, connecting things. Yeah. So re- this is
1: research out of the Harvard Business School where they looked at what differentiates wildly successful entrepreneurs from the average manager. And what they found is it's not, it's not their intelligence, it's not their creativity, it's not even their risk taking. It's their ability to identify patterns that are working in one industry or one time frame and reapply it to a different industry or a different time frame. And the example of Chipotle and Starbucks is is just really illustrates this in that they both succeed succeeded because of the same underlying pattern. And so on the surface, Chipotle, which serves Mexican food and Starbucks, which serves coffee, seem like they have nothing in common. But in fact, both of them were founded on the same formula. And that formula is find something that is succeeding elsewhere and import it into your hometown. So in the case of Starbucks, Howard Schultz went off into Italy and saw the espresso bars that were booming there and sa- and saw this real opportunity to bring it back to Seattle that led to the founding of Starbucks. In the case of Chipotle, Steve Ells was a chef in San Francisco where burrito bars were everywhere and he, he moved to Denver and started a burrito bar there because there was nothing to compete with and it became a sensation and led to the uh, explosion of the chain. And that Process of identifying the underlying blueprint really empowers you, either as an entrepreneur or someone who's considering becoming an entrepreneur, to find opportunities everywhere. Because now you're not just thinking about what a, a particular one particular business. Now you're thinking about, hey, what's successful elsewhere that I might import to my hometown, or vice versa, what's successful here that I can export elsewhere, and that formula. That, that blueprint thinking is what allows you to come up with uh, just a, a profusion of ideas because now you just see opportunity
2: everywhere. So you mentioned there that fascinating study. Um, you mentioned there are, of course, disruptive innovators like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. But the research finds that, generally speaking, personalities um, of innovators and ordinary managers are actually surprisingly comparable. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you um, you know you write that entrepreneurs are no more intelligent the middle managers and managers are no less risk tolerant than entrepreneurs. So uh, you conclude that the difference lies not in their personalities, but their behavior. Mm-hmm. So tell me what it means that innovators are more likely to act on their curiosity. Well, in the case of,
1: uh, that particular study, what they found was that questioning is something that entrepreneurs do much more often than managers. And so, uh, rather than um, simply following orders or doing what has been done in the past, they're constantly asking, hey, what would happen, for example, if we stopped accepting cash? Or why do consumers act this way? That openness to following their curiosity enables them to identify new ideas. And that's an approach that we can all use to our work. And that it's not simply just writing memos like we've done in the past or writing proposals like we've done in the past. It's asking questions about why did this proposal succeed versus this proposal, which didn't succeed. And through that process of continuously asking questions, uh, comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary, that we uncover hidden patterns and techniques that can improve our performance. And so again, it's all about that mindset of asking questions and taking apart
2: works that have succeeded to uncover their underlying formula. You cited another fascinating study. And actually, this study said, the more novel an idea, Mm -hmm. the more likely it is to be rejected. So we say we crave creativity, but we actually want familiarity. So (laughs) tell me how this insight informs your advice on the right approach to take, especially when it comes to business when we think about being
1: creative, we think about originality and that turns out to be a mistake because original works tend to get rejected. And it's because, as you said, we claim we want we want originality, but we actually uh, f- crave familiarity. And it's because as a species, we have evolved to distrust the new. What we really... Uh, cling to is things that have succeeded in the past. And so as it turns out, what the research shows is that the ideas that tend to succeed are not wildly original. They're the ones that take a proven formula and evolve it ever so slightly. So I'll give you an example of um, how this works in practice, which is uh, a, a book that some of your listeners may be familiar with, which is Twilight. Twilight, when it first came out, was very uh, unique, but at, then after that, there were a lot of copycats that then followed. So for those who aren't familiar, it's a story of a teenager who falls in love with a vampire. After it first came out, there were so many copycats of teenagers in love with vampires and none of them succeeded. And it was because audience expectations had shifted. That formula was no longer fresh, but what did succeed? It was Abraham Lincoln fight at being a vampire hunter that book took off and because it was taking an exam a formula that worked and evolved it ever so slightly. And there's research uh, looking at the types of grant proposals that tend to be accepted. And what that research shows us is that the ideas that are submitted that are very original, those tend to get rejected. But the ideas that have just a moderate dose of novelty, those are the ones that tend to get accepted. They're the ones who get funding. And so rather than aiming for complete originality, what we need to do if we wanna be successful is identify formulas that work and find ways of evolving them slightly. And in the book, in Decoding Greatness, I provide a number of formulas that you can use to evolve winning formulas so that you can make them your own.
2: And you also write that the creators of Palm Pilot, Atari, Alta Vista, uh, Friendster, and American Online uh, will admit that being first is not the same as being best. So say more about that.
1: Those are examples of in, in in some cases they were just outdone by folks who took their ideas and made them a little bit better uh, but what I think it illustrates is is that, A lot of times when you're the inventor of a new idea, you're locked into certain ways of thinking and you don't see the opportunities for evolving them. And so rather than confusing originality with creativity, what we should do is focus on new applications for winning formulas, because again, originality is likely to fail, which isn't to say that you shouldn't aim for originality, but it does suggest that the pressure that we Uh, put on ourselves or creative professionals put on ourselves to be completely original tends to be counterproductive because not only is that, is in a completely original idea likely to fail, but it's also the case that um, putting all that pressure on yourself will make it harder for you to be creative.
2: Speaking of winning formulas, you explain how Marvel superhero movies continue to be so popular. <laughs> so tell me about inexperienced experience.
1: Yes, this is research out of uh, INSEAD. And in, the, in their study, what they looked at was how is it that Marvel is so good at continuing to be successful? And if you think about it, all Marvel movies contain a formula and that formula tends to take some form of a superhero discovering a hidden ability, them trying to tame that ability, them having a hard time. They, um, There are... Uh, Combinations of people who are, um, you know, like the confident and powerful male against the perhaps less strong, but very willful female. And there's constant banter between them, particularly when their life is in danger. There is uh, a CGI Fueled scene at the end. And then in the case of Marvel movies, there's also the the trailer of a future Marvel movie to come. It's very formulaic, but yet they continue to be successful. And not just with in terms of raking in revenue, but also in terms of garnering popular appeal from critics. And so the question is how do they continue to make keep this fresh when it's the same movie every time? And the answer is that they uh, apply this strategy of an experienced experience. And what that means is finding a director whose experience lies in a different genre and incorporating them into the team creating the film. And so an example of this is the movie Thor. if you remember the old Thors went back before, I think it was the um, maybe over a decade ago. They tended to be pretty serious. And then in Thor Ragnarok, they hired a, an improv comic. To direct that film. And it became a very funny film. And that's the one that really took off. And that's what they do is they find uh they find directors from different genres that then alter the team just slightly, that allows them to take make take the existing formula and evolve it ever so slightly because the director's experience is in a different genre. And that's an approach that we can all use in our work. What it suggests is that if you If you have a team that has had a successful formula in the past, if you're trying to make that formula uh, continue to succeed in in um, when audience expectations shift, the solution lies not necessarily in in deliberately shifting the formula, but in shifting the makeup of the team. So either hiring a consultant, or hiring a new team member, or recruiting a different member of a, a new team member from a different department, all of that will naturally lead to a shifting of the formula, which will help you evolve it and keep it fresh.
2: And that is indeed one of the strategies that you identify in the book, how to take a proven formula and then adding a unique Twist. So some of the other strategies include blending several influences together. We talked about finding ideas in outside industries. And I want to talk about this one, excluding influences. Mm -hmm. So the example you give here is Judd Apatow, who avoids the work of other comedians when he's writing films. So tell me about excluding influences.
1: So this is a strategy of what I call willful ignorance, and that means being deliberate about which influences you want to exclude. And that's different from what most people suggest. Most people will suggest being deliberate about what you do include, which is obviously useful, too. But I think a bigger challenge in our current day and age is that so many of us consume the same Inputs. So if we're all listening to the same podcast, if we're all listening to reading the same books, we're all going to have the same ideas. And so the key here is to decide for yourself what am I listening to or reading that isn't adding or making me unique? And in the case of Judd Apatow, he's going to be ignoring some other comics. Primarily because it's going to lead him to create the same jokes, but also because he doesn't want to feel like everything's already been done, and uh, which undermines his confidence. And you see this in a lot of comedians. I talk about Bill Maher, who's um, a uh, an American comic who's on HBO. He'll avoid John Oliver, an, another comic who's on HBO, because he doesn't want to be influenced by him. Jimmy Fallon, who's another New York uh, based uh, comedian who's got the who's who heads the Tonight Show. He doesn't want to watch either one of those two because he doesn't want it to affect his jokes. And, you know, I can tell you for me personally, I don't read a lot of the popular authors in my genre. And it's because I don't want to be uh, influenced by their work. I want to continue to view my work the way that I view it. And uh, and so f- in my case, I read more fiction than I do nonfiction because it's that type of writing that I want to incorporate and what I think makes me a little bit unique is the storytelling uh, in in that I cram a lot of stories into a very short period of time. And so I don't tell stories over the course of 30 pages because I don't have the patience to even read 30 pages about a story. And I find myself flipping through the pages to get to the punchline or to the action item. And I feel like I'm going to embrace that about myself. And that's what I try to bring to my unique formula is I take items that have worked for other writers that I think are interesting, but then I combine them
2: in new ways. Plus I lean into my preferences. Thank I want to you. talk about the kind of the, uh, the latter part of your book, which puts these insights into practice. So tell me about the vision ability gap. That's the second half of the book. So the first half of the book is all
1: about reverse engineering, how you can do it, and how you can evolve winning formulas. The second half of the book is about bridging something called the vision and ability gap. And that term comes from a quote from famous uh, NPR host named Ira Glass. And Ira Glass has a quote in the book about him. Discussing something he calls the visionability gap, which refers to how when you're first starting out, you have these great ideas about what you are trying to do, but invariably at the beginning, you're going to have a hard time executing them. And it's because you're Vision is there, but your ability isn't quite there. And so the second half of the book is all about applying science-based insights on skill acquisition and how we can get better at the things we're trying to execute. And it's going to be hard at the beginning, but that is probably a good sign in that what it tells you is that you have a good radar for the ideas that are going to succeed. And rather than viewing the vision ability gap as something that you can't overcome, you need to trust that
2: radar and simply shrink the gap between your vision and ability. You write in the book that your clients who became entrepreneurs go from mildly disliking drawn out meetings to experiencing physical revulsion at them. (laughs) So what causes the change and what does it tell us about your scorecard principle? Well, what causes the chain, the change is that entrepreneurs
1: are keenly aware of the metrics that, that lead to success in business. And most workers are less sensitive to those metrics because their job security don't depend on them. So in the case of an entrepreneur, they know that unless they're generating profit, they're going to be out of a job. And that's not the case for most employees. They have different um, outcomes that they're optimizing for. And- It's because of that clarity around what are the metrics that I need to do to be successful at that entrepreneurs have that physical revulsion that I think is lacking for a lot of workers. We don't have clarity about what it is we're trying to achieve in order to get our next promotion or in order to be successful at our jobs. It's frankly quite vague. And that's a shame because what we know from the research is that anything you measure, you are likely to improve on. And that's the scoreboard principle, which as you mentioned is the, is the topic of uh, chapter four in the book. Anything you measure, you're likely to improve on. And the scoreboard principle can simply be stated as measurement begets performance. And so we know from studies that if you wanna lose weight, measuring your caloric intake will help you. If you're trying to improve your water consumption, measuring your water intake will help you get there. If you want to increase your focus, measuring your number of uninterrupted minutes per day will help you. And it's because when you're measuring something, you can't help but be more mindful about the decisions that you make. So for example, if after lunch, you're considering going on TikTok for a half an hour, you can do that. But if you know you have to report that on a timesheet, you're less likely to make that decision because of the shame you'll have to face up to at the end of the day. And so that is why Anything you want to improve, you should measure. And in the book, I talk about identifying the metrics that are going to help you improve on the formula you're trying to execute. So it's not just about reverse engineering what's working for someone else. It's creating the metrics that empower you to get better at the skills necessary for you to execute that formula. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, You also cite uh, decades of psychological research which suggests that all humans are born with three basic needs, belonging, Mm. autonomy, and competence. It's why we all have an instinctive drive for growth. But tell me about how to grow while taking risk out of risk-taking.
1: So taking the risk out of risk-taking is the the focus of uh, chapter five. And in it, I talk about how within a lot of organizations were taught that we need to take risks, but then we get punished when we, those risks don't work out. It's because most managers are not very patient about mistakes. And that's ironic because most organizations learn through risk-taking. And how they manage to do that is by taking the risk out of risk taking. And what I mean by that is taking strategic risks that enable them to figure out whether or not something's working without putting everything on the line. And that approach of intelligent risk taking that doesn't have huge repercussions turns out to be critical for anyone who's trying to improve their skills. And one example of an approach that companies use to take the risk out of risk taking is to use test markets. And what I mean by that is rather than rolling out a new product to an entirely new market all at once, hoping that it works out, what they do is they find a small subgroup and test out how that, how that product is resonating before they do the huge rollout. And that initial uh, input tells them whether or not something is successful, but it also tells them what needs to be improved before they go about that huge rollout. And that's an approach we can all use by, for example, taking out a test market on Facebook using ads. So $100 on Facebook with a test market to determine whether or not your new web- website is resonating. Or in the case of Tim Ferris, a famous writer, how he figured out the title for his first book, The 4-Hour Workweek, is he purchased Google AdWords with all of the various titles and looked to see what was generating the most clicks. And what he discovered is that the four hour work week by far generated the most clicks and that became his title. So that's an example of how you can take a hundred dollars and get a huge amount of input on your ideas before you roll them out to everyone else taking the risk out of risk-taking.
2: That's a great example. You also have so many other interesting ones including um, the real identity of uh, Robert Galbraith, the writer. Yes,
1: well, it's JK Rowling. And (laughs) you know JK Rowling after having written Uh, Harry Potter wanted to try her hand at crime fiction, but she didn't write it. She didn't release those books under J.K. Rowling. She tried Robert Galbraith. And for all we know, that's not even her first attempt at another book. Right? We don't know who else, you, who else you wrote under. And it was an example of writing under a pseudonym. And writing under a pseudonym is not just applicable to writers, but it's an approach that businesses use when they white label or they sub-brand. And so they're testing new products all the time, but we don't know that because they're being released under a different name. And you can do that too online. You can create an alias and you can test out your material, get some feedback before re- revealing
2: your true identity. Um, creating low risk stretch opportunities and ad- identifying key metrics. So, these are a couple of the ways to bridge the gap between a bold vision and um, someone's current ability. So, tell me about what else is needed. For instance, mental imagery of the process was superior to visualizing the successful outcome.
1: Yes. So I talk about uh, practicing in three dimensions. And what I mean by that is that most people, when they think of practice, they think about practicing in one dimension, meaning practicing in the present. But there are two other dimensions to practicing in the future, which, as you hinted at, is imagery. And so imagery simply uh, is about creating a mental forecast of what a particular experience will be like. And that turns out to be incredibly powerful. There is research showing that if you that athletes who use imagery are able to cut down their physical practice by up to fifty percent and not lose any uh, any impact on their not have any impact on their performance. And so, it is an incredibly powerful tool and one that tends to be uh, underutilized outside the domains of sports. And critically, it's not just about visualizing success. In fact, research shows that visualizing success will undermine your performance. And it's because when we visualize success, we are temporarily sated. We feel like, okay, I've accomplished the thing that I was hoping I would accomplish, and it feels great, now I don't have to do the work. And obviously we know that if you don't do the work, you're not gonna get that outcome. And so there's research showing that when psychology students envision themselves receiving 100 on a test, they're less likely to study, thereby undermining their performance on the exam. What does help, however, is when you envision yourself uh, doing the work. So in the case of the psychology students, it was envisioning themselves studying. And the reason that imagery is so powerful is because it allows us to front-load important decisions that then make us better, better prepare us for actually following through on the practice we need to do in order to be successful. So, if you're having to write a memo at the office tomorrow. Taking a few minutes to think about, to visualize yourself sitting down at your chair, pulling out all the materials you'll need to use in order to create that document, um, thinking through the steps you'll need to take in order to execute, all of that enables you to front load decisions so that when the time comes for you to write that assignment, you're better better positioned to actually do it
2: more uh, effortlessly. So just a, a few more questions before um, we wrap up and, we're, and uh, run out of time. Um Why are the best coaches and managers not the best players? So you give the statistic that experts leave out 70% of the steps required to succeed because they rarely think about them. And then when they do, they choke due to overthinking. So tell me why experts can't help giving lousy instructions.
1: We tend to assume that those who are at the top of their profession know precisely why they're successful and can impart that information upon being asked. But the reality is that much of their thought process is automated, meaning that they don't think about it consciously at all. They just do it. And it's because they've been doing it for so long. They don't even think about the steps. It's just automatic. It's just like when we drive, we don't think about, okay, now signal, now turn the wheel, now get your foot off the pedal. Like It's just automated. We don't think about it. And that's the challenge with, with expertise is that the better you are at something, the harder it is to explain how you did it. And so if you're going to be interviewing an expert and you want to understand and reverse engineer what it is that makes them successful, you actually need to become prepared with a very specific set of questions. And I share them in the book. And I also give other strategies you can use to get people to open up. Because what we know from the from the research is that talking to an expert isn't necessarily going to improve your performance unless you get them to open up about the discoveries that they've made, the mistakes that they've made, and really put them in the mindset of thinking about when they first started. That's the challenge, is that... Their fate, they're up against something called the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge simply states that knowing something makes it impossible to imagine not knowing it. And it's because we evolved to gobble, gobble up new information, not recall what it was like to not having, not having known to something. So it's not like we're, we're have, trying to be difficult with someone who's asking us a question. We just can't
2: imagine not knowing what they don't know. Finally, to bridge vision and ability to get to greatness, you give a quote. If you want to avoid criticism, it's better to be good than it is to be great. So tell me about feedback and when it works.
1: Feedback is actually quite uh, challenging. So when we think about uh, improvement, we often think that we want as much feedback as possible. But as it turns out, feedback can be actually quite harmful. And in a a remarkable percentage of the time, close to a third of the time, feedback is actually not, not just unhelpful, but actually Detrimental to our performance, and it's because we're talking to people face to face. They're going to prioritize the relationship over being honest, and it's not because they're bad people, but because we've evolved to try to maintain relationships. Most people will choose uh, the friendship over honesty, and in the case of online criticism, criticism online is often optimized to looking smart. So people want to look smart, and how you do that, it's it's easier to do that if you are critical. And so relying on online feedback isn't necessarily great either. And so in Decoding Greatness, I try to pinpoint what are the what are, what are the elements of good feedback and how do you get the people around you to provide you with better feedback? So just to touch on some of it, um, specificity turns out to be key. And so it's not just about, is this good? Because if you ask people, is this good? you'll get a yes or no answer, which isn't particularly helpful. You wanna know, does the opening in my memo uh, feel insightful? That's a specific question. or how or what can I do to make it more insightful? The other part that you that's important to remember when it comes to feedback is that asking people for advice turns out to be more powerful than asking them for feedback. In other words, say, what would you do to make this more insight this opening more insightful? Uh, that is an example of asking for advice. And research shows, this is a study out of uh, the Harvard Business School showing that if you ask people for advice, they will offer you, 50% more ideas than if you simply ask them for feedback. And it's because when you're asking for feedback, what they're doing is they're comparing your current performance to your past performance. And that is, they're 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 focused on whether or not you've improved. But if you ask them for advice, they're comparing your current performance to what your future performance might be. And that opens them up to new ideas. And so asking for advice turns out to be more powerful than simply asking for feedback.
2: Thanks very much uh, to Ron Friedman. And please do pick up his new book, Decoding Greatness, The Hidden Strategy for Achieving Extraordinary Success. It is a fascinating read. There's lots of uh, really useful advice. And I think uh, what makes the book work is that it's illustrated with a a number of really fascinating examples of high-performing individuals. And one of them is the story that Ron tells about Van Gogh. The artist was not great because he was born with talent or trained, but because he practiced at the edge of his abilities. So thank you, Ron, and thank you all for tuning in. I'm Linda Yu, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business. What are you
0: doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing...